2: Sit back and enjoy the stroke play of Meg Lanning. This
1: is excellent batting by Ash Gardner.
2: Jonathan strikes again.
3: She's on a hat trick She comes at Molyneux. Catch is yeah. taken
2: by Perry. The Australian women's
3: cricket team win their fifth T20 World Cup title in front of a magical crowd at the MCG.
1: Hello and welcome back to The Scoop. We are the cricket podcast dedicated to the women's game. My name is Emily Collins, And I'm Laura Jolly. Firstly, happy International Women's Day to everybody listening in today. So we've got heaps to celebrate. It's obviously been one year since the Australian women won the T20 World Cup at the MCG in front of 86,000 people. So there are obviously incredible memories for our sport that we'll continue to celebrate for a long time. And in more exciting news, we had some yeah exciting news come through this morning that the SCG have committed to having the first ever statue of a female cricketer. Uh, LJ, you recently spoke to Rena Hall, who is the director of the Bradman Museum and is yeah very committed to increasing recognition of the history of women in cricket. How was how Rena's reaction? She pretty stoked to have have this news that we're going to get a statue at the SCG.
2: Yeah, she was absolutely delighted. She's worked so hard for decades now trying to capture the history of the women's game because where there's museums and libraries filled with the men's game and its history, there's none of that for the girls. So it's been, she was super excited by that. And she's one of nine people who are going to be part of a new recognition working group, which is going to continue trying to find ways to celebrate the pioneers of the, the women's game. Yeah, that's
1: awesome. Awesome to hear and great that we're doing that for International Women's Day and it's going to continue on for a very long time. And so for our very special episode of International Women's Day on The Scoop, we've got two two guests. So we've got Sarah Styles, who was the head of female engagement at Cricket Australia for five years. So Sarah drove a heap of positive change around Australian cricket and how the organisation and the sport viewed women. And we've also got Steph Beltrami, who is the current EGM of broadcast and commercial Cricket Australia, as well, and Steph has played a huge role in making women's cricket visible on the TV through negotiating broadcast rights that included the women's game. But before we get to Steph and Sarah, LJ, WNCL, it's been a pretty exciting recent week that we've had, and we're getting to the business end.
2: People just keep racking up the the big scores. I think we've had 12 centuries already this season, and Beth Mooney, Georgia Redmayne, Grace Harris and Rachel Haynes all scored theirs and Elise Villani in the last week. It's been massive and the Vicks have locked in their spot in the final, assuming they don't lose any more demerit points for um, slow over rates and it's just a matter of which team is going to join them.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a very exciting race to the final. Make sure you keep up to date with all the WNCL news on cricket.com.au and the CA Live app. Now let's get to Steph and Sarah. And we are joined today on a very special episode of The Scoop by Sarah Stiles, who is a person that not many fans will know, but she's had an incredible impact on the game of cricket. So Sarah, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: And Sarah, so you were the head of female engagement at Cricket Australia for quite a long time. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what that role involved and what you did in cricket?
3: Sure. So uh, I joined Cricket Australia at the back end of 2014. Um, So the head of female engagement role was brand new at that point. And it had been created because uh, all of the leaders of cricket were saying, well, you know, the involvement of women and girls in the game, we want to do bigger, better, faster, but also, hang on, who's responsible for this? And actually, no one is, and how can we get more focused? So that's where my role got um, created from. So it was really um, how do we want to, as an organisation, Cricket Australia, but also as a sport across the country if we take the approach of any single touch point we have with women and girls we think we can do better how do we do that what are we prioritizing and how are we shaping what we're doing
1: and so what were your initial reflections (laughs) on working into walking into 60 jolly what were your thoughts did you feel like you had a big task ahead of you
3: ah well i was probably oh gosh um I was quite, I was probably a bit naive, so I can remember coming in and it was November and so I sort of thought, okay, well, I'm going to have this summer to figure out kind of how the business of sport works and then we've got next year to figure out what we're going to do and then we've got next summer to start doing stuff. Reality is, as anybody who works in a business would know, um, you know, there are budget cycles and there are planning cycles, so rather than kind of having this... Not leisurely um, introduction, but sort of a, a chance to kind of really take stock and figure it out. That was take stock, figure it out and have your plan and know what money that you need really quickly. And so I can remember only being four or so weeks in and being asked, okay, so what's the strategy? And I'm like, you kidding me? No, 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 we need more time. <laughs> so sort of the understanding the business of sport and the routine of Cricket Australia, that was the one that kind of I... Had a bit wrong, kind of when I when I walked into the building for the first time.
2: And did it ever seem like a task that might just be too big or too daunting? <laughs>
3: um, what uh, you may have heard me say this story before, actually, LJ. So um, I had come from doing something quite different um, for my career and I'd always been interested in working in sport and this job had come up and it was a bit of a tricky call. 2014 women's sport and just the general movement around women in sport was quite different. So I can remember joining on the basis that I knew I would regret it if I didn't have a go but I also had to accept that leaving behind what I was doing because my entire network was saying this is a bad career move, you shouldn't do this. But it was something I really wanted but I had to accept that ultimately I might regret it. Um, And I can remember, to actually answer your question, there was a couple of times in that first year I'm like, oh geez, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) Not because it ever seemed too big. It It was never kind of that issue because I also had the benefit of we were defining what was the world we were trying to change. So it's not like I came in day one, everyone's like, okay, here are 17 things that you want to do. If anything, that would have made my world easier. Um, Because instead I walked into a world where everybody had their own completely different perspective of what change was needed. And if I had my time again, what I would have invested a lot more time in, in those first couple of weeks, months, that first year, is actually getting those leaders on the same page of what is it that we're here to do and what do we want to change. Because without that, it meant that you were saying, okay, we're going to go in direction A. And the people who agreed, they were on board. But the people who thought, no, what about B or C, or actually, no, A, you don't necessarily want to do that, they weren't kind of behind you. Um, So, yeah, there were a few times in that first year that it was like, oh, geez, hang on. Uh, (laughs) But it came from a different place. It came from a place of, you know, some of us had so much enthusiasm for what we were trying to drive. And when other people didn't match that enthusiasm, you know, you kind of wanted them to. Yeah and
2: did you ever face any internal resistance for what you were trying to do
3: yes and it goes back to what i was just saying around you know people having a different sense of what did change look like Um, even the idea of what was female engagement everyone had a different definition so um, you know a key message that i say to people who are doing work in this space is particularly with the senior leaders of your organization or your sport try as much as you can to get consistency around, okay, what are we here to do? Because it wasn't only what we were working on, it was also how we were working on. And I was at this sort of point in my career that I was sort of moving out of being kind of the, the doer, the hands-on, into being more the, okay, well, how do we drive system change and kind of leading that change? So even the style of my working, you know, someone was like, oh, you know, you're two hands-on, and someone's like, oh, no, you're two hands-off. Mm. So, you know, um, the trying to build momentum when there was that sort of inconsistency. Um, And there was also, I mean, a big part of that was the differences in people's ambitions of what did they think was possible to change. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can remember at the end of my first year Uh, it was quite a big meeting Um, it was the first time i had ever presented to all of the ceos and chairs in the one room which that forum at that time only ever met every six months and i can remember somebody making a point that really where the women's game was at like they they do it pretty well Um, you know the research said that the australian women's team was you know relatively well known versus other female teams and you know it was actually pretty good and me being the voice of saying You're kidding, right? Like, come on. You know, you can't think this is the best that we can do. Um, So, you know, actually stepping into some conflict, which was not my natural state, um, was a really interesting point because you're trying to get people to think bigger and kind of go, actually, just because it's been this way for 10, 20, 100 years, whatever you want to say doesn't mean the next five years can't look different which obviously if we think to what ended up being built in the years to come um, I'd like to sometimes think that individual looks back and goes oh actually Mm -hmm. you know what yeah we could have gone bigger we did go bigger yeah
1: and yeah of course the Australian women's cricket team they've been world beaters for years and years but for whatever reason they just didn't have the platform you didn't need to tell them how to play cricket, but what was it that needed to change, and where did you where did you step in there?
3: So you're spot on, um, and it's actually one of the amazing advantages that I had in my role versus some people who are trying to drive similar change in other sports. I already had a national, uh, a world championship team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had this, team and the thing is, interestingly, when I took the job on. Um, the women's game was actually not a prominent part of how the role was scoped. So because cricket was like, okay, we want women and girls to be more involved in all parts, it was particularly around playing the game at a community level. Um, There was obviously conversations around how do we get more female fans into um, the men's Big Bash League, which that actually was an incredible success story as well in recent years. Um, I knew very little about the women's game. And so what attracted me to the role was actually how I engaged with sport up to that point which was I was a female fan of men's sport. Mm -hmm. So I knew the Australian women's team existed um, I grew up in a little town in Southwest Victoria and the Australian women's team actually came and played there when I was a teenager oh, because there you go. the little kind <laughs> of the, the tiny oval in my country town happened to have like disproportionately stupidly good <laughs> yeah. lights and so it was I believe it was they were trying to do some practice ahead of playing under lights right yep okay. and so they actually came to my little town called Cobden to play the um, a grade men's team just to get some practice under lights so I knew they existed Yeah. But if you had asked me to name a player outside of Belinda Clark, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been able to. Um, And this is where I'm incredibly fortunate that the person who was hiring for this role, they had a very particular skill set in mind because a skill set that I wasn't bringing was a strong awareness of the women's game. So I've come on board and I can remember those first few weeks, as you say, these are phenomenally successful women, phenomenally successful team. And I was like learning about this thing off to the side, I'm like, hang on, <laughs> hang on. have you seen what's over? like? Do you understand this thing that you've got?" Yeah. And so for me it was this like it, honestly a transformational moment for me around you know what then became the absolute driving passion for what I was doing, which mm-hmm. was you have this incredible asset that is just like mm. like, like, what are you doing Who a <laughs> thing <laughs> So, like, that for me was this this huge eye-opener. And so in in those first couple months, uh, when we were writing the strategy, which was only an internal strategy that we called the female engagement action plan, a key part in there was on the women's game, and it said two things. And the first thing was we need to be more fan-friendly and we need to plan to grow. And neither of those things are revolutionary, but it kind of says where we were at, which was the women were seen as incredibly talented. They had been given great support in a high-performance context. They wanted them to win World Cups and the team was doing that. They're incredible. But the idea that actually there was a um, whole of organization push for off-field growth, it just wasn't how the world worked at that point in time. Which in hindsight seems so ridiculous Mm. to say. Um, So, and I mean, don't get me wrong, there had been great work done up to that point. You know, you think about how much someone like Steph Beltrami had driven. Um, We had benefited, we being cricket had benefited from um, a sports commission grant that actually had the team have a media manager for an extended amount of time. Mm. You know, having someone like LJ who was actually able to cover the team So it was more this sense of at that point, it was really hard. Even if you were a diehard fan of the Australian women's team, it was incredibly hard to actually follow the team. So how do we make that easier and how do we also try and connect directly with fans So the gatekeepers that were causing difficulty, not just for women's cricket, but all women's sport. Mm. So think about the people who make the choices of what goes on TV or the people who are making the choices of what gets printed in papers, that we could go around those gatekeepers. So that's where social media was just this really big piece of actually being able to directly build a fan base, talk to the fan base and have that ongoing conversation. Which, lucky we've got you because that's an <laughs> <laughs> That's what you are doing. <laughs>
1: so, Sarah, obviously a lot has changed since the day, the day that you walked into $60 a month straight to come in and revolutionise the game. What is the biggest change that you've observed sitting here now in the women's game and the way that cricket is viewed yep. in terms of women?
3: So, I mean, within this building, it is the mindset shift of... Back then, it was a case of saying, okay, we've got a series coming up. What is happening? Again, that off-field growth perspective and kind of people looking at you and kind of going, well, nothing's Mm. happening. What do you mean? And the complete 180 on that. So the idea of the head of female engagement role, right from my very first interview, was success looks like how do you get the sport to the point that we don't need your role? So from day one, it was how do you... Um, get the business to understand this is what we should be doing, get them to actually do it, and then you're there kind of making sure they're still going, but you're putting the systems in place that it's independent of the role, which is where we ultimately got to last year, um, which is when I wrapped up. So if we think about that when it comes to the growth of the women's game, getting the sport to understand we should do stuff. And then actually stuff is happening and stuff is still happening independent from us tapping people on the shoulder. So like that shift um, is is the big one. And I mean, that's the thing. It was about how do we reset the ambition of what do we think is possible? Um, and this is where people like Nick Hockley and the World Cup team, um, Kevin Roberts with his vision of where the women's game could go Um, took over from anything that me as an individual was trying to drive because at that point you have entire organisations and leaders who are setting the vision for where those organisations are going to go driving it and so that's when you kind of sit back and kind of go all right kind of the idea of that wildfire you know it's been lit and now it runs
2: And speaking of that, I think we saw for years the Australian team would play at smaller venues, often all their matches at the one venue. They weren't reaching many people, but then they filled the MCG. <laughs> how, how was that seed planted and how did that all come yeah. about?
3: So it was a funny one because at the point that I had um, joined, the, um, particularly the double-headed T20s, the um, internationals, they were a really important vehicle to get um, the Australian Women's Team on TV because if all the cameras are there, there's just less barriers, um, broadcast partners were more open to it. So um, the point that I joined, them playing on the MCG, um, it did happen, um, but it actually wasn't what was best at the time because they hadn't got the off-field growth part right reality is if you put five thousand people in the mcg i can tell you from experience you can actually hear someone on the Mm -hmm. other side of the ground have their conversation the acoustics or whatever the right word is is amazing but if you put five thousand people into north sydney oval Mm -hmm. or something like that it is phenomenal so it was a funny thing that the the people who had been championing the women's game and doing amazing things had got them to the big grounds and i can remember a bit of tension when you know I say, well, actually, can we take a step back? Because in their minds, taking a step back was going back to when there were some pretty crappy facilities over the years that I had heard about, you know, just unclean facilities and things like that. So they didn't want to go back to that. No one wanted to go back to that. But at the same time, always just being on those big grounds also wasn't necessarily helping because, okay, so it was on TV And you're trying to reach a new audience but if that audience was dialing in and seeing an empty ground and low atmosphere like we've seen of so much sport over the last year there's a reason they created fake crowd doors (laughs) Um, they were judging a product without actually watching the product and so that was actually working against the growth of the game so we actually took a bit of a step back to go okay well how do we just have great experiences for the fans who were coming along. So that's where like something like North Sydney Oval was so great. Um, You think about some of the grounds that WBBL goes to play at, um, you know, when they go to North Queensland, uh, is Lilac Hill over in Perth, you know, ones like that. Great atmosphere. Um, And they are beautiful, gorgeous grounds. So if it was a case of, okay, we've taken a step back, we're building some momentum, then it was a case of, okay, what is then what are we going to do with that the, the world cup so we knew I, I learned first about the world cup in those early weeks of the 14-15 summer and it actually is in that document this idea of okay well if we want that tournament in five years time to be mm. good successful whatever word you want to yeah. put there then actually that's not something that happens overnight we've got to build towards it yeah. so then it became a conversation of what does that look like and again almost the wildfire concept comes to mind again because you know I remember some of those early conversations at that point the men's and women's tournament were intertwined Mm. and we saw it's it's just an elaborate double header the women's event Mm -hmm. is you know hidden underneath the men's depending on what country it's being played at those matches may not even get advertised no crowds everything like that so we were really working on it and again, you know, Nick Hockley, Kevin Roberts very much come to mind here, James Sutherland, who obviously sit, sat, sits, sat on the board of the, um, the, the World Cup SITS. I suppose it's still going, isn't it, the men's? This is yeah. going to be a couple of years off. Yep. Yeah. And so the idea of actually splitting those events apart was where it started. And then it became, okay, well, if the men's tournament has to be played at this certain point, when do we want the women's tournament to be played? And at that point, we had started doing in 2015 and 16 a few bits and pieces around International Women's Day. So for example, in 2015, um, James uh, gave a keynote at uh, UN Women. They have a great series of breakfasts, fundraisers each year. And so James actually spoke at their 2015 Melbourne event, which was at the MCG. And so just a few bits and pieces that when these conversations were happening around, well, how about we split it? Um, you may have seen actually shared on Twitter just recently um, it was Nick Kevin and I were sitting in his little corner office up on level five just talking about this and I can remember Kevin saying um, what day of the week actually is International (laughs) Winners Day and I've tried to think when it must have been that we had this conversation and I wonder if it was like Maybe early two thousand and sixteen or wow. something around International Women's Day. So we were kind of thinking about it, and we literally put out the iPhone and had a look, and I'm like, "Whoa, oh, it's a Sunday! Oh, that's very interesting." <laughs> and it's literally from you know you think about those early planning stages. It's some of these ideas, some take hold, some don't, and they get forgotten and forgotten and they're done. But that was one that anchored. Yeah. So then it goes to Nick and the team going, okay, well, what can we build to? What can we achieve? Um, And, you know, ultimately the rest is history. Funnily enough, before they were announcing where um, did we think the final should be, I remember people asking me. And I can remember saying, oh, you know, my guess is, you know, maybe SCG? Adelaide Oval, I mean, it's such a gorgeous ground. And then the next morning it was like, and the MCG, I'm like, whoo. <laughs> okay. all right let's do this yeah. this is great yeah. so you know it's it's again this idea of how do you how could we reset the ambitions mm. um and it was not only for the team who in the local organizing committee of the world cup that were doing that but then you know they then lifted the ambition to a new level all, yep. all so um yeah it's funny sort of long way of answering your question but this idea of actually we took a step back yeah. in order to grow um, and that was, you know, I think, the right call.
2: And we saw the Australian squad faced unprecedented scrutiny during that time, the World Cup, but overwhelmingly women's sport still gets such a tiny percentage of coverage. How do you think that can be addressed and how that can be improved?
3: Good question. Um, so, ultimately, women's sport is sport. So, you know, my view is by us ring-fencing something, it limits who it will reach because much like when people were tuning in to, say, the first half of a double header, they're seeing the empty ground, they're judging without watching the product, you know, they've, they're, they're distancing themselves straight away. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, ring-fencing something as come here and, you know, come and read about women's sport... That never really made sense to me. Um, you know, why does it make sense that just because somebody likes women's cricket, they should therefore like women's football? That, don't get me wrong, yeah. there is a fan base that actually that is how it works. Yeah. But if we're trying to completely change the game for sport and have men and women equally valued as peers, which was what we were gunning for in cricket, and I think we managed to achieve... Um, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense because we actually need mainstream reach. So, you know, how do we just start to talk about it like it's sport and how do we continue to grow the um, awareness of the players and actually um, drive that uh, mainstream awareness. So, you know, I, I would like to think that the generations growing up, they are growing up seeing male and female sports heroes Mm -hmm. side by side and so you're going to see this generational shift. I heard a story recently which was um, of a friend of mine who's a primary school teacher and in their library though they've got these cricket books and she went to break up a little fire between some some young boys and turned out they were fighting over the cricket books because the only books that were left were um, the girl books and that made me realise, my friend, passing this on, that maybe that generational shift that we thought was happening—you mm. know what? It's actually coming up against some pretty ingrained gender stereotypes, yeah. and they're still growing up in households with those stereotypes coming down on them from their parents, from their, you know, uncles, aunts, grandparents. So, you know, the the shift that I had hoped—we need to realise the resistance that it will continue to to. Um, you know, come against it, but it's still that point of how do we make female athletes ever present, and how do we talk about them for their um, accomplishments and what they're able to achieve, and their skill and their story? Mm. But it doesn't always start with, oh gosh, you're inspiring because you're a woman who's playing sport. Like, yep. there's we've got to get past this idea that they're just there for the inspiration and. To draw a bit of a long bow, you know, I um, watched last year after it came out, the Rising Phoenix documentary on the Paralympians, one of the most visually beautiful, like phenomenal documentary if you've never seen it. And there was a really strong theme in that as well of, you know what, what we love is when they're just there to watch great sport Mm. and that we're not just there to be people's inspiration. And I heard that and kind of thought, you know, God, I haven't thought about the fact that it's not just... Women's sport, that we're coming up against that. It's anything that is not the standard, what people have seen for a 20, 50, 100 years on their TV, that is also coming up against um, these stereotypes. So, you know, how we cover them as athletes, how we make sure there is regular, consistent content. Um, LJ probably remembers particularly well, sort of in those earlier years of you know the team might not play for six or nine months and Mm. you're trying to build a fan base but you've actually got nothing to talk to them about Um, and then how do we continue to go around the gatekeepers of your broadcasters Mm. or your mainstream newspapers until it gets to the point where they can't ignore so cricket did something that was really, um, really clever and this predates me being here So they would think of the cycle of building a fan base, which then gets you more coverage, which then gets you more television access, which then gets you more corporate partners and which gets you more fans and the cycle repeats. And so they would think about where can they step in Mm. to increase the speed of that cycle. And so a good example was they used to partner with the newspapers to make sure journalists covered them on tour. So, you know, back in, Uh, say the 2015 away ashes how do you make sure there's one of those mainstream journalists who are actually over there it's one of the best investments if we think about it from that perspective one of the best investments that they could actually make because the return on that investment was enormous the coverage was there so you know it's how can we also be clever in kind of saying the answer is not it will automatically happen because of this concept that one day women's sport will just be the same as the men's equivalent of that sport there's just something so deeply flawed in the logic and it also ignores the systems that have allowed one to excel at the expense of the other so you know those interventions are required not sure that's the best answer but yeah it's a few bits and pieces in
1: there did you appreciate the coverage of Elisa Healy's form heading into that T20 World Cup? I <laughs> think we've got the step in the right direction. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the funny thing is, if I do go back to that 2015 Ashes, um, so Australia obviously won that one and England were getting criticised in their home press, mm. which was obviously quite hard for yeah. them, but it was actually a really big step forward as they they acknowledged at the time, which was actually they're not covering us because they that we exist. Yeah, they're covering us because of how we're playing, and that shift from oh you're a woman playing cricket, how how interesting, <laughs> to geez that was a bit of a match mm. um, is growth. Yeah, um, even if that growth can sometimes, if you're on the receiving yeah. end, that must. That must be very hard.
1: Yeah, for yeah. sure, but it's a step in the right direction. step
3: in the right direction.
1: And so, Sarah, one of the key aims of the Australian Cricket Strategy is to be the leading sport for women and girls. From your perspective, how do you think this goal is tracking and what does it involve?
3: Good question. And probably if we are given a criticism on it, it was that we didn't define what that looks like. Mm. Um, so for us, when it, we think about being the leading spot for women and girls, there were sort of five different parts of it that we were broadly looking at. We were looking at um, representation in leadership in the workforce, in our boardrooms, the um, actually girls playing, so mm-hmm. the participation piece, the talent pathway of getting those people through who are going to one day represent their country, which is then into the fourth one, or um, playing the WBBL, WNCL. Yeah with the fifth one being the women and girls as fans, including of men's sport. So for us, it was this concept of, well, it's not about being number one in every one of them, but it is this sense of, when you look at it on a combined basis, do we believe that we are performing how we want to relative to other peers? And maybe not even relative to other peers, because sometimes if the standard's pretty low, Mm. just because it's low doesn't mean that's what you should be (laughs) aiming for. So, I think there is work to be done in defining what does that look like, Um, but what we do do and we release each year in the Press for Progress report is to say, okay, well this is where we're working towards, this is where we are today, this is where we were last year as well as the year before, and please judge us on how you think we're tracking towards that. So the unanswered question is if we then get to those targets, do we believe we've achieved the leading sport for women and girls? And there's the version of us judging it for ourselves versus you know others might judge us differently. But I feel strongly that to be the leading sport for women and girls doesn't mean we have to have the most number of girls playing and this and this and this and this. It is the kind of combined sense across all of those pillars that actually makes that happen. Yeah.
2: That makes sense. Ooh. And what are, have been the major challenges to increasing female participation?
3: So I've been really lucky that, again, predating me, there was a, there was a good focus in the community cricket team um, that it wasn't like we were starting from nowhere. But where we were starting from close to nowhere was the fact that it was near impossible, particularly if you didn't live in metropolitan Melbourne or Sydney, to play in a all-girls team. And I do focus on girls because reality is we're working in an environment of constrained resources, particularly then, um, and particularly now, post-COVID, what that's done to sport. So I was always of the view that if I had $1 and I had the choice of spending that $1 on a 13-year-old girl or a 35-year-old woman, Uh, I was gonna spend it on that 13-year-old girl. Not everybody agrees, but that was my view. So for us, it was this sense of those girls at the moment are either playing with women or they're playing with boys or they're just really not having much of a choice on what they could do. So um, with the momentum that had already been built around community cricket, um, there was already a National Female Participation Manager and there's also Sam Al-Maliki in there who was doing some really great things in growing cricket's um, focus around all forms of diversity. We work with them to get the entire sport with the um, support of the Commonwealth Bank behind the Growing Cricket for Girls Fund which then completely reset over the next few years the opportunities that girls could actually have to go down to a cricket club and play with and this was the important phrase, girls like them. Because what that means is different for the individual. So girls like them might mean another girl my age. Or, when they get a little bit older, it actually means with um, this skill set that matches theirs. So it's, And that's not something we're pushing down on them. That's something that we were learning about, just that flexibility of what does a girl like me mean. So, you know, over the course of that fun, that was like a 2,000% increase in the number of all-girls teams. So, nice. you know, if I think about the big changes that needed to be driven, that was it. Um, what cricket probably did though, and again, if we think in hindsight, compared to say some other sports, so um, women's AFL comes to mind, cricket was very focused on the supply side. So let's have the teams there, the infrastructure there, um, the equipment there, um, and then let's get the girls. As opposed to, I would say, again, using women's AFL as the counterpoint, they nailed the demand side, Um, through um, building the AFLW, you know, how well they did in building the movement around that ahead of its first season. The demand of those girls showing up Mm -hmm. and so teams having to be created to accommodate them, they're very different challenges. So we've done the supply um, and particularly out of last year, what is probably the biggest hit from COVID if I think about the momentum around the women's game Um, is that that hope that the girls inspired by that tournament and excited Mm. by that tournament, um, you know, then come down to their local cricket club, we've just got to hope when things are a little bit more normal that that energy and that passion is still there because, you know, as we all know, Mm. it was literally a matter of days after that final (laughs) that, you know, world shut down.
1: Oh, God. And Sarah, so another part of the strategy was making... Australian cricket more equitable as a workplace for women. Did you see that improve in your time? And how, does, how, do, how did you go about that?
3: So something that really, I think, surprises a lot of people is how, when you look at the Cricket Australia workforce in particular, but also in states and territories, um, that actually there was a really healthy gender balance in there already. So for example, Cricket Australia always sat at around about 42, 43% women. And it's not a surprise that's that should surprise people because if we think about who over the years that they would see, they would see the Australian men's team, they would see the chairman, they would see the CEO, and they would see, say, the HP, high-performance leader. And they historically had been all um, sort of, well, not so much the Australian men's team, they're obviously young guys, mm-hmm. but the other ones were mostly middle-aged white men. Yeah. So if your sport has a perception and that perception is being reinforced by who are your spokespeople, we shouldn't be surprised that people think that's what everyone in there looks like. So on a whole, there were a lot of women. People don't realise the Boxing Day test is almost exclusively put on by women. But in that leadership roles, you know, yeah. that's where there was um, not that representation. Women yeah. were very much underrepresented in those leadership roles. And that's where we saw the shift, particularly then in the boardrooms. So over the last few years, we saw it was, uh, women represented about 18% of Australian cricket directors, of which there are plenty. There's about 100 yeah. Australian cricket directors when you take in all of the different entities. Um, and now last year, and I admittedly don't know where the number is today, but as at last year, it broke through that 30% barrier for the first time, hopefully on its way to breaking through the 40% barrier with that 40% being a floor not a ceiling (laughs) you know that is the minimum not the maximum so that 30 percent barrier is really important because there's research that suggests that's around about the point that um women stop being in the room for women's issues as in we'll Mm -hmm. check in with you when we need to on a women's issue and so you've instead just got a gender diverse room that people are just having a conversation so that was probably the biggest shift and what you have to assume is with these Brilliant women being in those rooms, because let's be honest, they are all there on on their merit, despite what you know. Perhaps a few um, uh, older-fashioned individuals might believe mm. um, that will then continue to drive change, and you have this wonderful amplification benefit of that greater diversity at the top. So that's been wonderful to see. And it also means those women are there to support each other in greater numbers. And I'm aware of many examples of this sort of cross-country mentoring um, between sort of your more senior and your newer directors. So, you know, I'm just really excited to see that continue to grow. Um, And, you know, who will be the first, for example, female chair Mm -hmm. of a... um, Australian Cricket Body. That would be a really um, that's a big one that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. But even in the last week, you know, seeing someone like an Olivia Thornton become CEO of Cricket yeah. ACT. Um, I know she's the first woman to be CEO of that organisation, and I think she's the only the third female CEO across Australian Cricket. Chris Matthews being one, and I believe roughly 20 years ago there was um, a- another individual whose name escapes me who mm. was CEO of the Whacker as well. So you know, more examples of That is what we're going to need to see over time.
1: Hundred percent. We'll make sure we all keep fighting the good fight.
3: Yes, that's right, LJ. (laughs) Yeah, LJ.
1: (laughs) Chair. (laughs) Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the Scoop. It was absolutely fascinating to hear from you, someone who's driven so much positive change. So, thank you for taking the time. Any time. And our celebration of International Women's Day 2021 continues with a very exciting guest today. So we've got Executive General Manager of Broadcasting Commercial at Cricket Australia, Steph Beltrami here with us. So Steph's been a massive driver, driver of the women's game behind the scenes. So thank you to you, Steph, for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for having me. I've seen the, uh, the list of uh, podcasts you've done. I've
0: listened
2: to a few. So I'm, I'm very grateful to uh, be invited on. So Steph, you've worked at CA for about 20 years, starting off as an assistant to then CEO in Malcolm Speed. Can you tell us a bit about your life in cricket and the different roles you've done? I Thank you for pointing out my
0: longevity. Um, <laughs> I have absolutely had the best time working in cricket. Uh, I would never have imagined uh, on the first day I started in uh, 2000 in Malcolm Speed's office, um, if you would said to me I'd still be here you know 20 21 years later um, but I am it's just been the most amazing ride um, what a wonderful sport um, I wasn't a huge cricket fan when I first first started out um, I was definitely a, a massive sports fan and um, but probably a you know a fringe cricket fan and now mm-hmm. I've certainly become um, very passionate about the game and I've certainly seen a lot over those two decades and and um, as I'm sure we'll talk about the, one of the the most enjoyable aspects of that is seen, seeing the rise of, of women's cricket and um, the push towards professionalism and greater opportunities for women in, in cricket. So that's that's been great. I started out, uh, as you said, in, in Malcolm Speed's office. It was uh, an admin role uh, and I probably learnt, from one of the best um, going round in Malcolm um, and his assistant, Jane Walker, that gave me the, my first opportunity in sports. I'm very grateful to them. Um, quite quite a number of admin tasks. I, I was very familiar with um, the kettle and going to the post office, uh, going to up to the Commonwealth Bank on Collins Street um, with petty cash. I don't think I'd be allowed to do some of the things that I was doing. Um you know, carrying a bag of bag of uh, petty cash up the road to, to Collins Street, um, but it was a very good grounding, and I could sort of see how Malcolm operated, um, and and that was certainly gave me a, a wonderful foundation. Um, I then moved into the comms team uh, under Brendan McClements and learned um, a huge amount from Brendan and uh, and his team. Um, Peter Young took over from Brendan, and and also a wonderful mentor of mine, um, and that's sort of where I got involved. Um, with Peter putting me on the road to to do some media management of the of the Australian Women's Cricket Team, and then once I'd um, once I'd um, returned from a from a secondment. At the ICC in London which was also an amazing experience um, working the Clock Tower at Lords, I I came back and um, was given an opportunity to work with our media partners and that sort of started off my um, next phase of my career in in media rights and I was working in media rights for about 10 to 12 years before I landed um, in, in my current position. Um, which is an expanded role, looking after sort of the wider commercial parts of the business as well as the broadcast area. So it's been just unbelievable, and
1: um, really very grateful for every opportunity I've had. Wow, that sounds like an incredible journey, and you certainly moved on from just pouring teas and coffees from the kettle. And Steph, so your time as the media manager for the Aussie women's team. What what time frame was this, and um, who were some of the names in the team? And also, what was how hard was it for you to get? Um, media coverage at this time and what was the media landscape like? Look, it was um, it was really tough.
0: Um, we had – there was an outstanding team and, you know, we, we talk about the the feats of the current team and they are in their own right in, in, mm. the, in the modern era, um, the best team as well. But the names we had there when Belinda Clark was captain, we had Karen Ralton, Catherine Fitzpatrick, um, Julie Hayes, Lisa Kitely, Julia Price, Mel Jones, yeah. Lisa Stalega – you know, like I could go on and on with with the the list of of names and all very, very successful um individually, but then as a team as well and and that was circa i think around 2004, thousand and uh, four or five so they nice. I remember sort of picking up from the world Cup two thousand and five when they when they won in South Africa uh, and that was one of the early times where we had really push to try and get that game broadcast back into Australia and we had a funny story at the time we 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 worked with um Foxtel who had the rights and the only place that they could accommodate the the match was on the fashion channel (laughs) and given the time difference we were waiting in the boardroom at CA um watching the fashion channel hoping (laughs) that somehow we were going to be (laughs) <laughs> be able to watch the world cup final and we were sitting there a group of us waiting waiting and then the screen went black and we thought oh no what's happened here and the next minute it was the commentator saying you know we're, we're live here from from south africa with the women's world cup final and we were just it was amazing but i think now you you, you know the way um the, the number of, of channels that are devoted to sport now you wouldn't think we'd
2: land on a fashion channel again but it was, <laughs> it was quite a funny story at the time Speaking of speaking of broadcast from that time with that South African match and the T Twenty double headers with Australia and that from two thousand and eight, how has the broadcast of the women's games evolved since then to reach where it is now?
0: Yeah, the the double headers really was a way that we thought could try and be quite um, economical. I think perhaps from from the women's side, it wasn't ideal from a playing perspective because they'd often have to play. The games quite early, or there'd be a big gap between the end of one game and the start of the next game. But we felt that at the time it was the best, most efficient, and most affordable way that we could have the games broadcast because we were able to leverage um, whether it was our partner Channel Nine at the time. Um, you know, they're already set up to do one match, so the mm-hmm. economies were, were a lot. The economies of scale meant you know the, it was far more affordable to do that so that was kind of the early days of just trying to get the games on tv that was our that was our priority um we started off i can remember there was a one hour highlights package i think it was around 2000 2006 something like that and it came off the back of um the winter olympics so we had this huge audience watching and i, I remember perry was Playing one of her first games, oh, yeah. um, Shelly Nitschke took an amazing catch, and people actually kind of saw this. And then, and then there was a, there was a bit of a crowd that had built up for the men's game that night. And um, I remember the women's team were sort of doing going around the boundary like high fiving because there was actually people in the crowd. Um, and then we've sort of built built that up progressively over the years, and, and now we've got about 130 hours of of live content. Um, that's that's broadcast, but we also do a lot of coverage across live streaming. So we're in a great position now, where every women's international is is broadcast on Seven and Fox Sports, and we have a minimum of twenty three WBBL matches also broadcast on the same networks. And then the remainder of the WBBL is is live streamed on KO and and CA Network. So we just we know how important it was. To get that platform of visibility, so that people could see what what the players are doing, because it was always high quality, um, it was entertaining. We just didn't have the platform to show it, and you know I think that has sort of been a, a good driver to increasing interest and and increased you know the audience is there. Um, the appeal is there and that sort of puts a lot of pressure on other parts of the system to make sure that we're lifting our game whether it's in in pay conditions whether it's um to make sure that we've got the right participation bases and facilities in clubs etc so i think the more you keep pushing the pressure builds on other areas that also have to lift so it's it's a whole of system approach um to, to kind of where we are today um, been a culmination of many
1: many people's hard work and yeah. um and and real commitment to to push the cause. A hundred percent. And as you said, yeah, we're now at the point where we see all the Australian Women's Internationals broadcast on Seven Fox and KO. Over the years, I'm sure you were involved in plenty of negotiations. What were some of the challenges and what needed to happen within Cricket Australia and within those broadcast partners to make this happen and get to this point? Yeah, you asked me actually... Earlier, what you know, what would it, what was like, kind of trying to get publicity
0: mm. earlier, it, and it was very difficult. It was hard to get, um, you know, a, a score update read out on the on the news bulletin, um, you know, the hourly bulletin. I would ring up and sort of say, "This is the score," um, and, and people would take your call, but just sort of pretty much hang up and say, "Yeah, thanks." Uh, it was hard to get a photographer to come down. It was hard to get um, any column inches. Um, we tried a lot of different uh, sort of I guess you call them PR stunts. You know, we we took photos off the Sydney Harbour Bridge. We um, we just tried to come up with any crazy angle we could. Um, and in in fact, we when we were in Adelaide in two thousand and six, there was a t- there was a point in time where we had front and back page up for women's cricket. I remember Kate and Alex Blackwell on the front page of the advertiser was phenomenal, and on the back page they had um, Karen Rolton alongside um, some of the other iconic Australian um south australian athletes from from the crows and port adelaide and you know it was it was phenomenal it was terrific support but but it generally was very very tough um i think what's changed certainly um there's been a a, definitely a i mean women have sort of been playing catch up you know in the industry but also society for a long time um so a groundswell of you know really Trying to understand that you cannot only appeal to one part of um, the population if you genuinely expect your sport to be popular amongst the entire population. And I think slowly that realisation hit, and and there was you know far more concerted effort, whether it was resources, but but also attitudinal change. I think we still we still have a long way to go, but um, getting the the support from we always had support from, from broadcasters. It was a challenge to get games covered. It was a challenge to get good time slots and get good um, priority programming. Um, but, you know, they were also under their own pressures at the time. So, you know, I don't think it was realistic just to sort of, you know, snap fingers and expect that the whole world was changed, but we we kept working with them and, and demonstrating value and demonstrating audience growth and, you know, just continually um you know, re, re restating the case that this this makes sense if we can build it um, it will grow into something and, and now it's at the point where uh you know the WBBL is is the best women's league um you know in in australia definitely the best women's cricket league in the in the world um, I think we can we can hold that mantle um and you know the the, the numbers really it all up, so I think it has been. It's been a long journey, and we still have a long way to go. But um, really, demonstrating with, with with facts has been important. Um, really, having influential people keep um, pressing, pressing the case, uh, and, and working with our partners, um, who and and that's whether it's broadcasters or our sponsors. Um, you know, big shout out to the Commonwealth Bank who have been long term supporters. Um,
2: everybody doing their part creates quite a groundswell. And as you've mentioned, we've reached the point where we're now seeing a lot of the international games broadcast, but we still see those matches often played on 7 Mate or the World Cup finals on Gem, and there's only a portion of WBBL matches broadcast. What are the growth opportunities going forward for the women's game?
0: Well, I think especially with the WBBL, we are at an interesting point um, in terms of you know who who is the audience for the WBBL so I think from a you know broadcast perspective it does always sort of generally add up that if you you're in a prime time um, slot on a on a main channel generally the audience is a lot larger so if that was the case you know we if we're wanting WBBL to certainly be that um, introduction for young children as well. Uh, I think there's a balance between putting games at night and putting games in really family friendly, you know, afternoon slots to create nice carnival atmosphere at the ground. So I think there's a bit of a balance between pushing really hard just to keep growing TV audience and trying to have night matches, primetime matches, which would certainly boost our numbers. But also, I think there's an aspect with where the competition's at to keep uh, also making it very accessible for families to come along and enjoy the opportunity, um, enjoy a day out, uh, and and so there's a bit of a balance there. I think the opportunities uh, the opportunities come with just keep continual um, growth in commercialising it as well, um, mm-hmm. and I think that. That, that just adds to the professionalism of the total game. We, we know um, certainly a lot of partners that have come on board with cricket <clears throat> recently and, and some of our existing partners are def, definitely um, wanting to be associated with the whole of sport, not just the men's game. So they're very, very interested in, in associating with the female athletes. We can see how popular um, and authentic and talented and amazing the athletes are. So it's, it's little wonder that brands do want to associate themselves. So I think, you know, increasing the the value that we can um, apportion to the women's game quite quite rightly, like at the moment, we, we'd certainly generate most of our income via the men's game. It would take us a long time to, to balance that up, but there shouldn't be no reason why we wouldn't be deriving equal value uh, at at a point in time Um, but certainly they don't play as often so there's a um, difference there and I I think certainly there's a conversation at the moment about you know what, what formats international uh, women's cricket will will adopt, whether it's more test cricket or more T20 or um, having a multi-format approach like the Ashes between Australia and England where it is multi-format and there's a point system. So there's a few things I, f- I feel to work through, um, but definitely, you know, the long-term vision, we should be we should be saying there's no reason why we wouldn't be, um, from a commercial lens, um, generating, you know, an equal split, that there will be a long-term vision. Um, but also it will come down to um, demonstrating that value proposition and, and I guess um, that the balance of uh, volume of content sort of plays a bit of a role in that. Um, but yeah, I think we're definitely on the right path and, um, you know, we've put ourselves in a, in a really strong
1: position as a sport to to take a leadership role in doing that. 100%. And Steph, do you think, can you see us reaching a point where the WBBL is fully broad, broadcast on TV?
0: Yeah, why not? Um, it, it essentially is fully broadcast now because we have all the games um, available to watch and I think just over time, you know, the way that, that people will will watch content, um, you know, it's, it's it's available on a screen at the moment and I think that's that's all we need to, to worry about. You'll be able to sort of increase the size of that screen and you know, playing it to different different devices, but it it is available now as a as all 59 matches. Um, so yeah, and I think there's there's certainly we've got scope to work with our broadcast partners too. We've we've tried to make sure that the the quality of the broadcast is replicated across the men's and women's. Um, I think we can continue to work on on um, building
1: out the, the broadcast opportunities as well. And Steph, can you see in the future potentially having the women's game sort of carved out into its own rights deal, like have it just as a separate sort of proposition?
0: Yeah, that's that's a really um, that's a really good question, and I think that would be part of part of our strategy moving forward. Um, that, that we will have certain windows where they play the the, the content is um, has a lot of context and the volume is right, and we'll be able to to have clear windows where we could. Um, we could have it as separate packages, and, and in a way, we we do that now. Um, but I think we can get a lot more sophisticated in in how we do that too. And um, you know, the push for cricket to be part of the Olympics, I think, will only help us um, in that overall quest
2: to increase you know, the the commercial outputs for for women's cricket. And something we often see asked by fans on social media that people may not know a lot about is why isn't every single WBBL or WNCL match on seven? Can you explain just the logistics and what a huge exercise it is to get matches on television? It is. I mean, the production of of, of a cricket
0: game is, um, is quite involved because it's, unlike many other sports, it's sort of not end to end it's a full 360 so there are a lot of cameras involved Um, there's quite a lot of travel because we're a national sport so we play all around the country Um, there are ways that that over time it will become the production will become more affordable I think we saw through through COVID um, in many sports where due to due to border restrictions commentators and and other key personnel weren't actually able to, to be on site and a lot of calling was done Um, remotely uh, and a lot of production was done remotely and I think over time with uh, improvements in technology I mean there there are there are you can call do a game remote remote sorry produce it remotely now but I think over time that will become um, even more efficient and that will bring you know the economies of scale into play so production Mm -hmm. will become more affordable um, we hope over time Uh, and I think that will enable you know, more, um, more games to be broadcast. But but as I said, you know, we have we have all of our international women's covered and we have um, available to, to a screen all the WBBL at the moment and we'll continue to sort of refine and improve, you know, the number of cameras that we can put towards that. The WNCL, um, you know, it, it does become, you know, a, a cost element and, you know, I think we sort of – we have that balance between we want to – continue our vision and, and our um, desire to, to constantly improve and lift everything we do with, with the women's game and we don't we don't broadcast every Sheffield shield match either so I think we have to also understand as a sport we do have a lot of content mm-hmm. Um but you know we can live stream it and those economies of scale will come into play and we're doing everything possible on a live streaming front and I think we'd love to keep expanding that and do more and more and more um right down to even grasp you know how how much content There's 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 a lot of cricket content out there but you know we could
1: be doing all sorts of matches um And, you know, one day I hope we do get there. Very interesting possibilities. And another thing we often hear a lot about from the fans is DRS. So DRS is obviously something that relies on cricket games being broadcast and also a lot of extra technology. What have been the obstacles to having it at Women's Internationals in the last couple of years?
0: DRS. um, (laughs) It is quite a contentious one, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) Look, it, it does come down to you know, making some trade-offs on, on costs as well. Yeah. Um, I think I'm definitely, you know, a believer we just, we, we have to, continuous improvement is is important and we we can sort of, you can keep spending money um, on everything but I think we've got to work out what are the absolute priorities and and things that are going to really turn the dial mm-hmm. if you had to make a decision between broadcasting a game or, or having DRS, Um you know, I think the most important thing is to get the games covered and we can keep building and we can, um, you know, I know there's been discussion around, you know, BBL as well, having a, a review system of sorts. I mean, I also believe that that umpires um, are doing a great job and, yep. Um, yep. you know, let's not take away from the fact that it's a hard job and they're doing it very well 100%. and, you um, you know there are ways whether it is you know a full a full DRS system or just ways that we can support umpires who have a tough job um, it may not require a full DRS system it may just require some other areas and again technology is going to change all the time mm-hmm. and there'll be new innovations that hopefully lend support I mean ultimately we want we want the game to be adjudicated fairly and and we want to remove you know those those kind of howlers that, mm. that people talk about, which kind of really frustrate players and frustrate fans, and that's you want to eliminate eliminate that, but you want the game to keep moving. So look, I mm. think over time we keep building, and innovations will will play an important role. Um, so I can I can see it just constantly getting getting better, um, and hopefully fans can you know <laughs> give us continue their patience <laughs> until we you get you know the the right model in place.
1: Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And just to finally, for women who are aspiring to build a career in cricket or any sport, do you have any advice or, or any lessons you've picked up along the way? I think um, I would definitely encourage women to
0: be involved in sport, um, either playing or, you know, and there's so many um, more opportunities now um, than, than, you know, when I was a young girl. Um, I probably still wouldn't have made it. Um, anywhere near the on-field action um but I think there's definitely a lot more opportunities um for for young girls to play and then even to forge a career as an athlete um certainly in cricket that is a that is a possibility and I only look at how many um how many you know young girls are selected to play for Australia and they're still at school (laughs) it's it's crazy WBBL and I've got to do an exam this weekend I think wow like that's you know, that, that's oh. a very different story to what we had, which was the women's team holding down jobs mm. um, to play for Australia. So now we've got school kids um, doing <laughs> exams. So definitely opportunities are there and I would encourage girls to get involved in cricket and, and know that you can have a career. Um, and I certainly encourage um, girls and women, you know, off the field in a range of opportunities. Um, it, it's only improving. It's, it's becoming more competitive um, but I think also attitudes are changing, and and there is a lot more scope for girls to to be involved. And we certainly have, um, you know, a real a real desire at CA to ensure that we are we are progressing women through through the organisation, um, that we've got representation at, at board level um, on, on the executive team and, you know, across senior managers and, and making sure that we are progressing the careers of, of women in cricket. It's very important.
1: Steph, thank you very much for taking the time. It's great to hear from your perspective on all things broadcast and the media landscape. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us on this week's episode of The Scoop. It's my pleasure and thank you for having me. Good luck, team.
2: he is away. Australia are away. Sit back and enjoy the stroke play of Meg Lanny.
0: This is excellent batting by Ash Gardner.
3: Donison strikes again. She's on a hat trick. She comes at Molyneux. Catch is taken by Perry. The Australian women's cricket team win their fifth T20 World Cup title in front of a magical crowd.